Hello and welcome to the Idaho Reports podcast for August 24th. I'm Melissa Davlin. This week, Governor Brad Little announced he is calling a special legislative session for September 1st. The governor has proposed a wide-ranging piece of legislation that would provide record-setting tax cuts and investments in education. The governor has more than 60 legislative co-sponsors from both parties and chambers on the proposal. Alex Adams, the administrator for the Division of Financial Management, joins me this week to discuss the proposal. Thanks so much for joining me, Alex. Thanks for having me. So, first of all, what is Idaho's budget situation that sets the stage for this proposal in the first place? You've heard the governor talk about a $2 billion surplus. So um, when the state fiscal year ended on June 30th, we had $1.4 billion in the bank. And then in August, the state releases a new revenue forecast that's looking forward. It's looking to what we expect is going to happen in the current year, which runs from July 1 to, to June 30th. And based on the increase of the revenue forecast, uh, we're now expecting a $2 billion surplus. And to be clear, we've talked about this so many times on the show, but for those who aren't familiar, this is state general funds. This is not federal dollars coming into the state. That is correct. Federal funds are accounted for separately. So we'll get into the details of the bill in a second, but why a special session right now? Uh, so you, you heard the governor talk about the impact inflation is having on every household. Idahoans are feeling the pain at the gas pump. They're feeling it at the grocery store, at every uh, retail checkout counter throughout the state. And there's a juxtaposition between the state having $2 billion in excess revenue and the, the financial pain that Idaho families are facing. And there's a strong desire to return that surplus to the taxpayers sooner rather than later. Uh, if we do a special session now, we can start getting checks back to Idaho families in September rather than waiting until February, March, or April if you do it in a normal session. So let's go into the overview of the bill itself, because this isn't just immediate tax rebates. What's the elevator pitch on this piece of legislation? Two parts. It's the largest tax cut in the history of the state of Idaho, and it's the largest education investment in the state of Idaho. And the unifying theme between the two is inflation. Inflation is uniquely impacting Idaho households, and it's uniquely impacting our educators. I'm sure you've heard the stories of uh, school classrooms needing to you know, do GoFundMe pages in order to, to get basic supplies and other things like that. And this is to give the schools the certainty that money will be available to help them combat uh, historic inflation. Let's start with the taxes and get to education in a second. You say this is the largest tax cut in Idaho history. It has two parts. The immediate rebates that you said go out as soon as September if this passes. What's the second component? Uh, so in addition to the rebates, there's a flat tax uh, proposal. So it would take uh, the four brackets that remain in our income tax and consolidate it down into a singular rate at 5.8%. Uh, uh, that's a cut from our top rate today of uh, 6%. And kind of the yin and yang of this is after you get the rebates out to Idaho households to help them with historic inflation throughout the fall, uh, when January rolls around, we're giving them the certainty that they'll have additional money in their pocket in each paycheck moving forward uh, to continue to deal with the fallout of, uh, of inflation. How much are those rebates going to be? Uh, so the rebates... Uh, it depends. We're leveraging the mechanism that we put in place uh, this past uh, this past year with rebates, and the minimum would be three hundred dollars uh, for an individual, uh, six hundred dollars for a joint uh, a joint household, or a maximum of ten percent of the income taxes that they paid to the state. Whichever is highest, right? Correct. Whichever and, is highest. And those are the filings from the year twenty twenty. That's correct. Got it. Why three hundred and six hundred dollars? So. Um, 
the state has uh, done rebates each of the last two legislative sessions. Last year, the minimum rebate was $50. Uh, earlier this year, the minimum rebate was $75, and $75 per member of the household. And it became clear that, uh, especially for uh, senior citizens, widowers, some individual households, it uh, was not enough to help combat the historic inflation that they're dealing with. Uh, so we adjusted the minimum upward, we adjusted the maximum downward, and uh, this was the amount we came up with. Uh, the, there's some symmetry to the number of uh, $600 with what uh, the Joint Economic Committee of the U.S. Senate said is costing Idaho or any family throughout the country. Uh, they're saying it's, uh, inflation is costing folks about $600 per month. So there's some symmetry with that number. Also, um, while it's crept up in, in uh, recent years, uh, the average uh, of the circuit breaker property tax relief benefit has been in the $600 range. So uh, certainly this, this could help uh, folks with inflation and could be seen as an additional average uh, circuit breaker in, you know, from recent years average. For people who aren't familiar with the circuit breaker, can you give us a brief overview? Uh, it's, it's a way to help uh, certain individuals with their uh, property tax bills, and it just is applied as a credit. So, you know, one of the things you hear a lot is, you know, why, why are you doing another rebate like this? Why didn't you do property tax relief? And I think it's worth repeating. The state derives zero dollars from property tax. The surplus is not attributed to property taxes. Those go to local units of government. Uh, we certainly understand the challenge folks have with property taxes but not everybody owns property. You have renters, you have other folks who uh, live with family or friends. And what this does is put money back in everybody's pockets. People can use it for property taxes, or if you don't own property, you can use it for groceries, for rent, or for any other purpose. This lets Idahoans choose how those dollars are used and applied. You're not the recipient of those property tax dollars, but the legislature is in control of the circuit breaker and other provisions of the property tax statute. So why not fix that part of it as opposed to worrying about the rebate? Uh, so anyone that's watched uh, legislative debates over property tax knows it's exceptionally complex. Uh, there's a lot of ideas that seem simple on the outset but have pretty complicated uh, cascading effects. They don't lend themselves well to special sessions. Uh, special sessions are generally uh, topics that have, have emerged where some level of consensus has built and uh, property tax is one of those issues that's much better addressed uh, through a regular session in January. And we do anticipate you'll have continued discussions on property taxes come January. I'm sure you are right about that. These are income tax rebates. How about Idahoans who rely on SSI or disability? Will they get rebates? So um, anyone that files for a grocery tax credit is eligible uh, for the minimum. So if you're a senior who has no income, and uh, you filed for grocery tax credit, uh, you will uh, still be eligible for the minimum rebate, either 300 for an individual or 600 for a joint filer. Going back to that flat tax, the 5.8%, you said that it is a decrease from the highest bracket, but it's technically an increase for the lowest brackets. Can you talk about how this is actually a net decrease for everybody? So, um, it's a net decrease for everybody because we're adjusting when we start collecting taxes. Uh, today, we start collecting taxes on the first dollar of taxable income. Uh, this adjusts the threshold upwards to 2,500 for individuals and 5,000 for uh, joint filers. And then that dollar gets adjusted for inflation. 
Uh, so by exempting the first 2500 and 5000 from taxation, it becomes a net tax cut for all Idahoans. Simply put, there's nobody who will pay more in income taxes next year than they paid uh, this year. How does this affect businesses? Uh, well, first, I think it gives businesses uh, certainty about the tax environment that they're heading into next year. It uh, drops the corporate rate from six down to five eight, so uh, corporations will see a, a cut. But one of the benefits of flat taxes, you know, folks talk about it being pro-growth. You know, right now when you have different income tax brackets, there's kind of a penalty for earning the next dollar. By removing the disincentive for individuals to earn that next dollar, it uh, incentivizes work, it incentivizes people in the workplace, and frankly, by exempting the first 2,500 and 5,000 of income, it perhaps uh, incentivizes you know, some of those high school kids to work at the ice cream shops in summers and, and bring some of those folks out as well. So uh, the benefits of a flat tax, pro-growth, simple, fair, doesn't take an army of IRS agents to enforce. Let's move on to the education funding portion of this um, historic investments in education, as the governor noted on Tuesday, with $330 million annually for K-12 through public education. What can that money be used for? Uh, so the point of the special session is to provide certainty to our, uh, our institutions and, and the education community that ongoing funding will be available. So as we talked about at the beginning, uh, schools uh, are dealing with historic inflation. And uh, they do have quite a bit of one-time money that they're sitting on from ARPA, specifically the ESSER program, that they could use uh, to get through uh, the short term. Uh, but as anyone uh, in business knows, you don't make ongoing decisions with one-time money. Uh, so by signaling that the ongoing money will be there, uh, it's really important uh, to, to get these dollars committed now. What we're doing right now with a special session is the bill as uh, put forth by the governor. It would earmark that $330 million ongoing for K-12, but how that pie is divided would be a decision that's made by the legislature that starts in January. I'm sure we can anticipate there will lots, be lots of conversations over school facility funding, classified staff pay, teacher compensation, health insurance, empowering parents program, and, and things of that nature. Uh, but those really lend themselves to a January regular session uh, conversation. Uh, and so uh, there's no specific earmarks uh, that this bill uh, calls out for how those K-12 dollars would be used. The lawmakers who show up in January are going to be very different than the ones who show up to the special session in September. A lot of people are retiring. A lot of people lost their primaries. And we haven't even hit the general election yet. What's stopping this new legislature from cutting education funding in other ways? So, um, simply put, you know, the governor views this bill as the largest investment in education in state history. So we do see these as additive dollars, not dollars that would be subtracted uh, from the base. Of course, you can't bind future legislatures. Uh, so, you know, I, I think the next legislature will probably have a wide range of debates from what you suggested to should we put additional dollars on top of the, the 330 million? I think the benefit of doing it now, you're conveying the certainty to the education community. You're also giving the new legislature that's gonna be starting in January, a three to four month head start, where they can work collaboratively, work with the stakeholder community, and come in with some pretty cohesive plans. Uh, I've been in the budget role long enough to know that fighting for funding and dividing the pie is, uh, is a pretty tall uh, order. Having the certainty of funding and dividing the pie 
separates it out and it uh, makes it much more manageable. It was pretty important to the governor knowing that uh, a new legislature will be started in January, uh, that they have uh, the authority to d decide how those dollars go. I think uh, everybody that watches how this governor has worked, he's very collaborative. He respects his partners in the legislature. He works closely with them to bring key priorities across the finish line. And we didn't want to get out ahead of that new legislature and making spending decisions. Uh, so this sets aside the funding. The new legislature, as you noted, which will have a much different composition with some members of the House moving to the Senate, uh, some members who chose not to run, some who got redistricted into the same district and had to run against each other. There will be a new composition, and we thought it was most appropriate to work with them on the spending decisions. I want to talk a little bit more about that collaboration in just a second. But first, there's another piece of this education funding picture, $80 million annually into a new in-demand careers fund. Can you talk a little bit about that? So um, one of the things that was important to the governor in working with the legislature on putting this together is uh, education is not just K-12. There's a broader ecosystem of education and a much more holistic ecosystem. It involves career technical apprenticeships, community colleges, four-year higher education institutions. And uh, that was a gap that he wanted to address. Uh, so by putting the $80 million in a new fund called the In-Demand Career Fund, Again, it buys the next legislature a little bit of time to work together on plans and determine how those dollars can best be spent. Um, same deal with inflation. All of those entities I just named are dealing with historic inflation. But one of the things you also see is, also in times of economic downturn, you see uh, large surges in demand in post-secondary training, specifically at our community colleges and uh, career technical uh, programs. Uh, so preparing uh, for that eventuality uh, was something that was important to the governor. Let's talk about how this intersects with the Quality Education Act. Uh, Proposition 1, voter initiative by Reclaim Idaho, that is still set to be on the ballot regardless of what happens at the special session. If the legislature passes Governor Little's plan and if voters pass the Quality Education Act, what happens? First things first, I think what I would say is you know, Governor Little's always had a commitment to enhanced education funding. If you look at the totality of what he's done over the last four years, he's increased starting teacher pay, he did a five-year career ladder, teacher health insurance, he's quadrupled uh, literacy funding, things of that nature. Where uh, this bill diverges from the Quality Education Act is on, you know, they want to raise taxes on Idahoans to raise additional revenue. The governor's bill lowers taxes on all Idahoans. It uh, repeals and replaces the income tax. It goes from four brackets with a top rate of six to a single flat tax with a top rate of five eight. So simply put, what this bill does is it diverges on taxation uh, and uh, because it lowers uh, the rate and takes effect after uh, the Quality Education Act would if, if passed by the voters, it uh, has the effect of uh, repealing and replacing uh, the revenue source that they were seeking. And just to clarify, on Proposition 1, it would raise taxes to 8% for top earners, so individuals who make $250,000 and joint filers who uh, make half a million dollars. The, you said the timing basically means that the governor's plan would supplant the Quality Education Act. Was that intentional? So. Um, First, a technical correction. So it raises the corporate rate from 6% to 8%. 
for individuals, it would raise the top rate uh, from the current 6% to 10.925%. Thank you. That would be uh, you know, one of the largest income taxes in the United States. It puts us between uh, California and I believe uh, either New York or Massachusetts, I can't remember. Uh, but it's, it's one of the three highest in the country for individuals. Uh, the other thing it does, and there's been quite a bit of confusion on this point, uh, there's been some drafting errors, not all created by the initiative uh, seekers, uh, but one of uh, one of the things that needs reconciled, and the attorney generals had a, had an opinion on this, is that it could restore last year's tax cuts. Uh, so it might be a net tax increase on everybody under the attorney general's interpretation. Uh, so having that hang out there, having um, that uncertainty for Idaho businesses. Uh, is is not in the best interest of a state that's trying to make itself open for business. Idaho wants, you know, we want to be the state uh, where entrepreneurs uh, want to bring their businesses or expand their businesses. Uh, so uh, certainly a different approach. Uh, you know, the conservative approach of cutting taxes for Idahoans while raising education funding by leveraging economic growth. And, and just as a note, Reclaim Idaho says that they disagree with the attorney general's opinion that this would only affect those top earners. And thank you for the correction on the 8% right there. Um, so these are different approaches, like you said. But, but again, was it intentional that it happened at the same time as the Quality Education Act? You know, I, I don't know that I, I, I'm the most qualified person to, to opine on that. You know, I think from the from the budget standpoint, uh, we're making sure uh, that Idaho continues to be a pro-growth state, a state that uh, attracts businesses, that attracts families, and a state uh, that uh, you know is competitive. And uh, you know, I think what the governor has put forward uh, keeps up uh, the ideal or those Idaho principles of being you know, the least regulated state, low tax state, one that is attractive to entrepreneurial activity. If the legislature passes the governor's bill, it includes what's called an advisory question. It goes on the ballot. It's not a binding policy-making question. Rather, it informs lawmakers and the governor where the voters' will is and what they think of any given proposal. And it basically says, do you think these tax cuts and this education investment that we just did is a good idea. That's going to be on the ballot at the same time as the Quality Education Act. Are you worried that that might confuse the issues and confuse voters? You know, I think that's part of the education outreach that this special session will need to, to accomplish. And I think part of the messaging that the governor will have to do throughout this fall. So, I mean, advisory question is that it gives citizens the, the, the chance to, to provide input uh, on on an issue that went before state legislature, and they're not too common in Idaho, but uh, if, you know, according to Ballotpedia, there's been about 45 advisory questions on uh, state ballots uh, over the last decade. Uh, the last, the most recent one in Idaho, I believe, was in 2006. It was when uh, Governor Risch did a, a special session and uh, had a similar bill that uh, was addressing education funding and uh, tax policy simultaneously. And uh, it was put before the voters uh, so that uh, they could uh, provide input on whether or not this was a good thing for Idaho. And it will help the new legislatures that start in January identify uh, where the will of the people is. There are more than 60 legislative co-sponsors on this bill. What did it take to get to a majority? Did the governor have to leave anything on the table that he was really hoping to include in that bill? 
So, you know, I, I think anyone that's watched uh, this governor over the last couple of years, he's very collaborative and works closely with the legislature. Uh, when he comes into a regular session, he's vetted key portions of his plan through legislative leadership and individual legislators who are known to have an interest in certain areas. And a special session is no different. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, I've seen Governor Little meeting with majority leadership, minority leadership, and uh, many individual members of, of, of the body through both in-person meetings and, and uh, phone calls. And you know, anytime uh, you're bringing a, a bill forward, oftentimes it's a consensus process. And uh, the parameters that the governor set out were um, you know, record tax relief to help people with inflation, record education investment, and he brought forth a bill that did there. I mean, there was obviously negotiations around the parameters. Where do you set the flat tax? Where do you set the threshold for where you start taxation? How do you set the minimum for the rebates? How do you set the maximum for the rebates? Those were all iterative uh, discussions that uh, led to, to where we are today. Where did the governor start, and how different is that than where we are today? Um, so, you know, I, I think often how you start these, uh, you don't start with a preconceived uh, numbers. You start through discussions and you feel out what's possible. I think the thing that undergirded this more than anything is what could sustain in the budget over time. You've heard the governor as far back as his first state of the state uh, speech say it's not what you do in the bad times that gets you, it's what you do in the good times. Uh, obviously, being in a period of surplus is a good time. And you don't want to outdrive your headlights with those good times because there's there's folks who think a recession could be on the near horizon. Uh, so you know, kind of uh, kind of the thing that under underpinned any of the final decisions is what do we think will reasonably sustain over the next five years using the pessimistic revenue uh, estimate uh, for the next five years and making sure that the state can sustain a structurally balanced budget while meeting all our other commitments. In addition to education, obviously the state has commitments to you know, public safety, corrections, um, things of that nature, and ensuring that we'll be able to meet those out year commitments as well. Because there are so many legislative co-sponsors on the face of this, it looks like this has enough support to pass. From a public engagement point of view, if the if lawmakers take public testimony on September 1st, will it matter? So I, I think one of the things that was pretty important to the governor is public engagement, and that's why he publicly released uh, the draft bill yesterday. Uh, so by putting out the draft bill yesterday, it gives everybody a chance to take a look at it, become familiar with the components of it, and uh, provide their informed opinions to their legislators in advance of uh, September 1. All right, Alex Adams, Administrator for the Division of Financial Management, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Idaho Reports will host a special episode on the special legislative session at 8 o'clock p.m. Friday on September 2nd on Idaho Public Television. The episode will also be available online at idahoptv.org. In the meantime, follow us online for the latest updates on what comes out of the September 1st session. Thanks for listening. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Hi, I'm Marcia Franklin, the producer and host of Dialogue. For more than 25 years, we've been bringing you conversations that matter. More than 150 of those conversations are with writers, and now you can take them with you wherever you go, while you're walking, around the house, or in the car. 
Just search for Dialogue with Marsha Franklin on Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms. And remember to subscribe so that new shows download automatically. Enjoy.